the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today our guest is coming to us from Massachusetts. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Dr. Melanie Davis. I am the Unitarian Universalist Association's Our Whole Lives Program Associate. Thank you so much for coming on our show to talk to us, Melanie. What is Our Whole Lives? Our Whole Lives is a lifespan sexuality education program. It's a comprehensive program, meaning it covers pretty much every part of somebody's life that sexuality is part of. It starts from kindergarten, and our most recent edition will come out this July for older adults, 50 and above. So what do you mean by lifespan and comprehensive? Lifespan means that we have broken it down by age levels. So we have kindergarten through first grade, fourth grade through sixth grade, seventh grade through ninth grade, 10th grade through 12th grade, young adult, which is age 18 to 35, adult, which heretofore had been 36 to death. And uh, we now are adding uh, OWL for older adults, which starts at age 50. And how do people take these classes? Most often they're offered within uh, Unitarian Universalist congregations. Not all of our congregations offer it. Sometimes they don't have enough people in one age cohort to manage a program, or they have other priorities. It's also offered in the United Church of Christ. They are our co-publishers of this curriculum. But by far the greatest number of users are Unitarian Universalist congregations. It's also used outside of our congregations in youth-serving organizations, the young adult curriculum and the high school curriculum are often used in, well, not often, but are used in some correctional facilities. We are very excited about the potential marketing to assisted living uh, centers with the older adult curriculum and retirement communities, senior centers. Um, so there are a lot of opportunities to bring sexuality education to a lot of other places. There's also interest in our whole lives internationally. Um, when people who live in those communities invite us in, we work with them to try to create some type of adaptation of our whole lives that will be culturally appropriate. The UCC is doing this, and we are also doing this. When we use it outside in other countries or even in other settings than congregations, and we have adapted the curriculum, we just call it something else because it's only our whole lives when it's used as written in its entirety. When we talk about in its entirety, uh, you asked earlier about whether it's comprehensive. That's what makes it comprehensive. When we cover the range of sexuality from identity to bodies to media images to misuse of sexuality to intimacy to sensuality, all of those aspects of sexuality, when we touch on all of those, that becomes comprehensive. Mm. If we only talked about the biological aspects, it would not be a comprehensive curriculum. So how are these uh, curriculum decisions made and who writes the curriculum? Well, that's a big story. Uh, when uh, our whole lives began with several task forces that were created to look at what the needs were, what was being done in schools, what was being done in congregations, and, and there was a, a real interest in creating this comprehensive curriculum. And the UUA and the United Church of Christ, or UCC, partnered to create Our Whole Lives. The task force looked at what's called the SECUS guidelines. SECUS is the Sexuality Information Education Council of the United States. And at that time, 
they had published a series of guidelines for developmentally appropriate sexuality education. So what we need to know at what stage in a young person's life. And those guidelines helped the task force decide what would be included in that first um, set of curricula. For the seven to nine grade level, which is our foundational grade level, uh, an author, Pam Wilson, was brought in to write that. Pam is a highly regarded sexuality educator of young people and teens. She worked closely with the task force with Judy Fred Judith Frediani, who was in charge of curriculum at the UUA at the time. And then what happened is, is what we do with all of our curriculum at the UUA is we field test it. We never publish anything that hasn't been field tested. So it had a national field test in congregations, in community settings, in nonprofit settings. And then what comes back is feedback from all of those users. And then you developmentally edit the curriculum to incorporate whatever changes. You know, if one person says one thing, you're not necessarily going to listen. But if many people say this didn't work or this needed more time, then we adapt the lesson plans. And we follow that process with everything. It's been instrumental. So we hired different authors for different editions. Sometimes things are written in-house. I wrote the one for older adults that's coming out soon because I have a professional specialty outside of the UUA in sexuality and aging. We look for people who know what they're doing in, in that uh, topic area. And sometimes, for example, if we hire someone who's working, we're currently revising the kindergarten through first grade edition, and we look for people with specific experience with that age group. Can you talk a little bit more about the relationship with the UCC? It's, I guess it's a little bit inside baseball, but I was just curious. I'm, I'm a Unitarian Universalist, and I had heard about OWL before I became a member, and I was just curious about how that relationship works with another denomination. We have what's called a memorandum of understanding uh, about how we will make decisions together. So, for example, when I proposed doing an OWL for older adults, we talked to the UCC and they were all, you know, in favor of doing it as well. When we hire authors, we make those decisions together. My peer at the UCC is Amy Johnson. She has a social work background and a sexuality education background. She's called the OWL program coordinator, whereas I'm the OWL program associate. But other than that, our jobs are somewhat similar. And we are in contact several times a week because we not only manage the curriculum, but also all the facilitators and all the trainers. So we work to train those people together as well. And there are, there's a financial partnership as well. That was actually my next question. Can you talk about how the teachers are trained? Sure. Um, we have a, a system that has been in place from the start because we want to make sure that we're not just tossing out a curriculum to anybody who might happen upon it, although the public can purchase it. But we highly recommend that people be trained as facilitators. So the UCC and the UUA work together carefully to select trainers. They're experienced sexuality educators, generally experienced with our whole lives as well. We bring them into a retreat setting and teach them about the new edition that they're being trained on or the levels that they're being trained on and prepare them to work with facilitators. The facilitators are the people who actually work in the settings with the young people or with the young adults, and they're actually implementing the program, whereas the trainers are preparing the facilitators to do that. When we do a facilitator training, it's generally uh, 22 contact hours plus meals and breaks, so sometimes up to 26 hours. Um, often starting on a Friday and ending on a Sunday. And the process of 
training is less about the curriculum because they're expected to come having read the curriculum, so they have some familiarity with it. It's a process of assessment. So when we go to a facilitator training, we would assess our own comfort talking about sexuality, helping other people talk about sexuality, our own comfort with talking to a kindergartner about sexuality or talking to a young adult about sexuality. So there's a lot of self-assessment that goes on. There's also assessment by the trainers. So throughout the three-day period, trainers are observing people and their comfort level and can they set aside whatever emotions they might have around sexuality. For example, if someone came with a trauma background, that in itself is not going to preclude them being a wonderful facilitator if they can set that aside while they're talking about sexual trauma to young people, for example. So the trainers are observing that. They're observing boundaries because we do not want our facilitators talking about their own sexuality or their own experiences when they're working with others because we want to center the experience of the participants. So the trainers give people feedback throughout the three days. And then by the third day, the facilitators have an opportunity to be doing peer facilitation. So they've actually taken one of the pieces of the workshop, practiced putting it together with another teammate, and then presenting it to the group as if that group were, say, a group of fourth graders or a group of teenagers. So they get practice actually using the curriculum and um, working with time. You know, here you got a 20-minute activity. How are you going to manage your time so that you get done in 20 minutes? And so it's like it's an opportunity to work with the curriculum. Generally, by the time people are done with it, they feel a little nervous about stepping into the fray and facilitating, but also prepared. So that's really fascinating to me. What does uh, sexuality information look like for kindergartners or fourth graders? What are the things that these kids need to know? So I have a like a, a psychology background. So I know that sexuality does begin to develop very young for children. I'm so curious about the kinds of information that they need to be taught other than privacy, you know? <laughs> Well, and, and different families have different mm -hmm. ideas about privacy, too, mm -hmm. right? One of the things that Our Whole Lives does is we don't make assumptions about people or their families or, or those values. We allow people to live their lives and make sense of their sexuality in their own way. So we don't do a lot of you should do this or you should do that kind of stuff. For example, in the, the kindergarten curriculum, now we're, we're revising the curriculum right now, so it will take a different shape. But the kindergarten curriculum uh, generally talks about bodies, what the body, typical body parts are. Um, and we don't use normal because there's nothing abnormal about a body that looks a little bit different. So we talk about bodies, we talk about conception, how babies join families. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's with to biological parents, sometimes it was this adoption, sometimes it's with reproductive technology. There's lots of ways mm -hmm. babies can enter families or children can enter families. Then we talk about families in general. How are families made? And sometimes it's biological and sometimes it's by choice. And sometimes it's your neighbor down the street who you have a close relationship with. And we do talk about privacy and safety. Um, so those are the basics that we handle in the, the K-1 curriculum. In the 4-6, which we just published in 2017, 
we start talking about sexuality and values. So what do we think about these things and how do we want to be accepting of our bodies and other people and relationships and things like that? We talk about images and popular culture because so many young people, you know, when we hear about five-year-olds going on diets, it's mm -hmm. distressing, being, mm -hmm. but they're seeing that in the media. So we talk about what they're seeing and how to look at that critically. We talk about body image then, puberty, of course, because a lot of children are going through that. And we don't make assumptions about people going through certain things at certain times. We try to use language that is inclusive of all kinds of bodies and experiences. So we say a lot of, you know, typically boys' bodies have blah, 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 but not everybody's body is like that. Your body might not be like that. So we try to make it affirming for all kinds of children. We introduce the topic of gender. And in the fourth grade level, we're talking about there are certain ideas that people have about how people behave based on their gender. But we know that that's not always the case, that sometimes people like to be different than that. So we normalize the idea that people can be different. And there are stories in the kindergarten through first grade and the fourth through sixth. There are homework assignments that people bring home. So they have conversations about these same topics at home. So we're mm -hmm. helping the parents. Our, our primary idea is that parents are their, the sexuality educators of their own children and mm -hmm. caregivers as well. So we want to support them in that by giving them resources to take home. In the four through six, we don't call it sexual orientation. We call it feelings and attractions mm -hmm. rather than having a, a kind of heavy label on it. And just how we can be attracted to all sorts of kinds of people. Then uh, there's reproduction and staying healthy. So that's, you know, hygiene and reproduction, that kind of thing. Decisions and actions is, is how do we make decisions about who we'll be friends with, how we'll use our bodies, how we'll use our privacy, those kinds of things. And then we have a workshop on consent and peer pressure, because even in fourth and sixth grade, children are feeling pressured. We know that they're seeing pictures often online. Uh, they're being introduced to images that they probably are not developmentally appropriate for them. So how do you make those decisions? If you see someone bullying someone because they are different for whatever reason, what's your responsibility to help them out and, or report them? We end with a workshop on healthy relationships with other people and a party. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then as we go up in ages, when then the next grade is seven to nine, and, and we cover similar concepts, but in greater detail. You know, the healthy relationships is two workshops instead of one workshop. And we talk more about bystand, like in the there's a bullying workshop and how does it feel to be bullied and how can we protect ourselves if we're bullied and how can we be responsible bystanders if we are observing bullying happen. And workshops around consent, starting with something simple like, can I give you a fist bump? So, you know, the young people walk around the room and they're instructed, sometimes say no, sometimes say yes, and then processing how they feel about getting a no. Because often we don't teach people how to accept a negative response. Mm. And so uh, I think a lot of the bullying and a lot of the abuse happens because people aren't taught that it's okay to be denied. So we talk about that. One of the really great things about our whole lives is we work around the experiential learning model, which is that you do an activity and you don't just walk away from it. So if I just, you know, fist bump you, mm -hmm. then we've just fist bumped. That doesn't do anything for us, right? We don't learn anything. If we do that activity and then we sit down and we say, what did we do? 
well, we walked around the room and we, you know, we touched fists if we wanted to. Okay. And what, how did that work? Well, we didn't have to do it. We could say no. The facilitator said we could say no if we wanted to say no. But we could also say yes. So they, they think about really what happened. And then they're asked, well, what can you do with this? What does that mean to you? Well, then they extrapolate. Okay, well, that means that if I have a right to say no to a fist bump, then if somebody asks for a hug, I can say no to a hug. Or if they ask for more, then I can say no to that too. So they're thinking about what the meaning is. And then the next step is to think about how can they use this in their life. So, oh, well, when I start dating, this will be handy. Or, you know, if I go to a dance and somebody's pulling me a little too close, then I have a I have a right to say no. So that's how they learn. It's all the same cycle in different topics. Especially because this is your professional specialty. I'm curious about the education for older adults as well mm -hmm. uh, and the curriculum in there. And, and how those decisions are, are made and what kinds of information exists for people who are sexually active into their older adulthood. So to our knowledge, this is only the second curriculum, full comprehensive curriculum specifically for older adults. So that's exciting to be able to mm -hmm. be pioneering in that area. The decisions were made in part because of my own expertise with comprehensive sex ed and what that encompasses but also consultation with other sexuality educators, with gerontologists that I know, with the UCC and, you know, what their ideas are. Um, and then we came up with sort of an outline of the topics and then who we might want to bring in for that. So, for example, the workshop on um, sexual orientation and gender identity is written by Dr. Jane Fleissman, who did doctoral research on older adults in the LGBTQ community. And so in a large part, that workshop includes, it's called In Their Own Voices, quotes from older gay adults about their experiences in aging and sexuality. It creates a timeline of LGBTQ history because often that's left out of history lessons. Mm -hmm. So it gives people an opportunity to say, well, this was going on in the gay community. Oh, that's when World War II was happening. And mm. so they kind of learn uh, to build this timeline. We've lost a generation of gay elders to the AIDS crisis. Right. There's are a range of workshops in there from, you know, sort of the general anatomical issues, but we also include age-related changes that bodies go through. And there's a workshop called Sexual Scripts, which is looking at, so this is what worked for you sexually when you were younger. Is that working for you anymore? And if it's not, how can you be creative about moving forward, either romantically or socially or sexually? There's no assumption that people are partnered or want to be partnered. There's no assumption that they're sexually active. You don't have to be sexually active to participate in the program. In fact, when we field tested this, one of the bits of feedback I got, which I just loved, is a director of religious education said that they had a woman who thought she was going to another class and she was there on the wrong night. And they said, no, come on, sit down. And she said, oh, no, I don't need this class. I'm not having sex. And they said, it's not about that. Just, you know, come on and sit down. And she finished the class and she said, well, I bought myself a nice pair of pajamas because I decided I don't need anybody else to have those pajamas. They're for me. 
That Aww. made me feel so wonderful. <laughs> yeah, sounds so empowering. <laughs> we have a workshop on dating, and that talks about how to find friends. Even if you don't want to find somebody that you want to partner with, how can you use the skills of finding a date to find a friend? And they do um, speed dating activity because more and more senior centers are offering speed dating. So they get a little practice doing that. We have a workshop called Sex Play Beyond Basics. It's the last workshop in the series. And that's about sex toys and creativity and introduces some concepts of the kink community like consent and really being open and uh, affirming about the conversations that you have about what you're interested in. Safer Sex, we have a workshop on, um, we have a wonderful workshop, um, Family Matters, it's called. And that's about, so a significant portion of older adults are their grandchildren's caregivers. They play a role as their sex educators too. So we talk about what kinds of conversations can you have what kind of conversations maybe do you need to have with your adult child about what they're teaching their child so that you and they are not in conflict or so that you can be supportive if they are not supportive of their child's identity, for example. We talk about the issue of um, older adults who go into memory care, for example. Often they give up their power of medical attorney and power of um, financial control to their adult children. Mm -hmm. If you are in that position, then your children get to make decisions for you. And that includes whether you will be able to be sexually expressive, for example, in, in some cases. So what we know is that in memory care units, it's usually the staff are like, you want to hold so-and-so's hand, that's fine. If you want to, you know, cuddle, that's fine. They're okay with it. But if the adult children hear, wait, wait, my parents in here, they're sick enough to be in memory care. They shouldn't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. So we talk about how do you communicate with your children or with somebody else that you trust about what your what your wishes are if you are in, a, in that situation. You used a term that I wanted to follow up on, safer sex. So I'm curious, why are you teaching safer sex versus safe sex? Because there are no guarantees. Protective methods can fail, and there are STIs that can be passed even if you wear a condom internally or externally. HPV is a skin-to-skin -skin issue. Um, herpes hangs out at the base of a penis, so wearing an external condom doesn't necessarily protect you against herpes. So we talk about what risk-aware means, and that means having conversations that can be challenging about when somebody's been tested, whether they've been tested, what their results were, and then making an informed decision about what risks you want to participate in. And that's important for older adults because sometimes if they have not benefited from sex ed on their own, they might assume, well, I would know if somebody had an STI because I could tell by looking. And you can't most of the time. It's impossible. So we, mm. we talk about that and we talk about how to put a condom on. We talk even about how to put a condom on with your mouth if you want to do something a little different. Uh, so we can do things with the older adults that we can't do with, of course, the teens. You had mentioned earlier that you receive feedback and when you receive one piece of feedback, it's not normally so incorporated uh, as a large amount of feedback. So I'm curious how does your curriculum take feedback from sexual minorities like the LGBTQ community? Before we even get to the field test stage, we have critical mm -hmm. readers. 
we kind of hand select people that we know are of specific communities and we invite them to read the curriculum and give us feedback. So sometimes we'll get feedback. It's like, you know, you ought to do this. And we're like, that's really out there. And it's, it's for the bulk of who we're working with, that term is not going to resonate, for example, because mm-hmm. language changes so much or that concept won't resonate with enough people. It's not to say we don't listen to it, but when you're used as widely as we are, you have to try to create something that most people can use. And we do have guiding values that when we look at feedback from various people, not just people who are marginalized, but everybody, is the suggestion that they're giving us aligned with OWL values. Mm. And the OWL values are self-worth, responsibility, sexual health, justice, and inclusivity. So, for example, if somebody says, gee, I'd love to use your curriculum, but can we take out that gay stuff? (laughs) No, you can't, because that's infused. That's Mm -hmm. justice and inclusivity. That's part of it. So you need to find yourself another curriculum. If they were to suggest that we do something that's against the principles that we know to be good for sexual health, Mm -hmm. we wouldn't incorporate that because our value is sexual health. Responsibility is knowing that the person that you're engaging with is able to give consent is legally, you know, is your decision legally responsible? So there are a lot of different aspects of what that means. So we take all that feedback into account and then we look at it through the lens of the OWL values. And how is the the LGBT curriculum developed? Well, for example, in the older adult curriculum that was written by someone who is in that community, we do make an effort to bring in contributors who are express a diverse range of people. Um, For example, this isn't to your LGBT question, but for the older adult curriculum, the workshop on sexuality, disability and chronic illness Mm -hmm. was written by an advocate who is in the disabilities community. And she's an advocate for sex and disability, and she wrote the curriculum and with contributions from another disabled advocate. So we're bringing in people that have a relationship to the material, let's put it that way. Recently, there's been so much more public discussion of trans and non-binary gender identities. Does the OWL program kind of uh, touch on gender identity and, and bodies in that way? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How you talk about it depends on the age group that you're talking about. But for example, in the seven to nine, one of the things we do is we do talk about gender identity and then we have another workshop on gender expression. Mm -hmm. And then we encourage people to have a guest panel where they bring in people who represent different identities so that the young people either see someone like themselves or see someone and learn from them. So they're interacting with people who've been there, who can tell stories, who can support them in their own search. We try not to otherize people. So we try not to say, if you meet somebody who's transgender, because anybody in the room might be non-binary, might be trans, Mm. might be, uh, you know, any sexual identity. We never ask participants to disclose anything. They might share it. But they're never asked to disclose anything personal because our our belief is that often people are still exploring who they are and they might be gender fluid. And so they're figuring that out and they're working with friends who don't understand 
that there's anything other than male and female. And mm. so within the owl space, we need to create an environment that's warm and welcoming so that at least once a week when they come together, they feel safe, they can do some talking and exploration, and then they'll have more support when they go out into the community. And we have heard stories from people who come back to us afterwards or to come back to their congregations as they are older and say, this saved my life because this was the one place where I could really talk about who who I am and explore who I am. I didn't even make any assumptions in the older adult curriculum that people are firmly have a stake in the ground about their identity because mm. older people sometimes come out of the closet. You know, maybe they were married for 50 years and their partner dies and then they it's like, oh, well, let me explore who who I am, who I've always been, but I lived this other life. So we don't make any assumptions about anyone at any age. This has been just such a fascinating conversation. I just want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us and sure. for all of the work that you do. Al wasn't the only reason that I became a UU, but it was definitely one of them. I joined a congregation about 10 years ago. I didn't have any kids yet, but I, I knew that I wanted to have a family, and I knew that um, that would be a really great environment, as opposed to other religious communities that keep people in the dark or make people feel shame and, and guilt for, for being who they are. So great. I'm, just, I'm just so glad to talk to you, and I'm, I'm so glad for the work that you do. Is there anything else you wanted to add? When we use Our Whole Lives in congregations, we encourage people to use it with a companion called Sexuality in Our Faith. Our Whole Lives is a secular curriculum, so it doesn't have any UCC or UU material in it, although mm -hmm. we agree with it. <laughs> but, um, but we put it into the context of our values or our faith values when the sexuality in our faith companion is used. And what that does, it, it adds things like the ritual of chalice lighting, talking about, for example, today we're going to talk about, about gender. Which, which of our principles do you think fits in the could it be the search for truth and meaning and who we really are or could it be our affirmation of inherent worth and dignity so we bring that into the teaching of sexuality education the other thing i'd like to say is to encourage congregations to welcome people from outside their congregation into their our whole lives programs this is a gift that we can offer to communities and we can offer it to other settings as well. So thinking about foster children who might benefit from this um, after school Ooh. programs, children in juvenile detention programs, um, children in immigration settings that, you know, there are a lot of ways that this can be used creatively. And, and Amy Johnson at the UCC and I are available to help talk about making that decision about where it's a where it's a good fit. Do you have kind of outcome information? So uh, are there any kinds of outcomes that could be recorded for this kind of education? And, and if so, what are they? We wish that somebody would come along and do a longitudinal study. Um, <laughs> we can't fund it ourselves because then it would be, you know, we wouldn't be. Yeah. We have talked to a couple universities that were interested in doing studies, but it's expensive. It's a couple hundred thousand dollars to do a study. There is a study being conducted in uh, Kentucky in uh, mm -hmm. middle schools that are using our whole lives. There have been a couple of studies that I'm aware of, of like resident assistants on college campuses have, have done a couple of the workshops and then reported results there. And those have been positive results about decision making, um, but they're not using the whole curriculum. They're only using a couple of the workshops. We can't say that we are evidence-based. 
And evidence base is important if you want to use a curriculum in schools. What we do know is that we are evidence informed. Mm. So, you know, using the CECAS guidelines initially, I recently compared it to the new uh, future of sex ed standards, which that's groups like Planned Parenthood and Advocates for Youth and other groups got together and created a new set of standards of, of what people need to know when and OWL meets or exceeds all of those standards. So we know that. It's just the studies haven't been done. But we do know that people come out of this and come back to their congregations or their parents. And that's where we hear back that they're so grateful that they had this experience. They might not always understand or remember what they learned in the Safer Sex Workshop or what they learned in the Relationship Workshop. But what they remember is the music of our whole lives, which are those values that sex can be a positive force in our lives, that trauma can be overcome and, and prevented if we treat each other with responsibility and care, that people can be safe in their gender and uh, sexual identities if we treat each other with respect and empower them to be who they are. So that's what people listen to, and that's what they remember. That sounds fantastic. So uh, on that note... Where can people find our whole lives and resources on the internet in particular? Our whole lives can be purchased and sexuality and our faith can be purchased from the UUA bookstore. That's uuabookstore.org. Also mm-hmm. from the um, UCC, the United Church of Christ uh, resources uh, is their equivalent of our bookstore. Anyone can buy it, but like I said, we do encourage people, if they're going to use it, to take facilitator training and to um, use it as it's implemented. But we do have homeschoolers who use it. We have people who have uh, special needs children who don't, you know, this the OWL setting, the group setting doesn't work out, so they use it at home. So there's lots of ways to use it. And where can people find you on the Internet? Uh, they can reach me at owl at uua.org. Uh, if they want to look me up elsewhere, I'm Dr. Melanie Davis at Dr. Melanie Davis, but that's not my UUA personality. <laughs> you can find me online on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie, P I like the number pie. And you can find me at uh, Karen, U H K A R E N, on Twitter. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and feminist coffee hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth. And you can find her music on SoundCloud.